Welcome to Discovery with Babbitt Ranches. Discovery is all things cowboy essence, people at their best, accomplishing extraordinary achievements. Hello, I'm Billy Cordasco, broadcasting from the Hash Knife Studio in the historic Babbitt Brothers building of downtown Flagstaff. Today, we're talking about the weather. As my granddad John Babbitt used to say, a good ranch always manages for drought. And that is something we've, thankfully, not had a lot of this past year. Instead, it has been about rain and snow, with a wet monsoon season last summer and followed by just an incredible record-setting winter. All of this moisture has come on the heels of a rather impressive drought cycle, with much concern about our reservoirs out west. But winter 2023 surprised us all with the kind of snowfall locals will certainly remember for years. We have a very deep snowpack. This is the longest we've ever had 10 inches of snow on the ground in the Flagstaff area in history. That's the National Weather Service meteorologist in charge, Brian Klamowski, stationed in the Belmont office just west of Flagstaff. Brian will be joining us in the Hash Knife studio in a moment. But first, Discovery with Babbitt Ranches acknowledges NOAA, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, for their efforts to provide daily weather forecasts, severe storm warnings, climate monitoring, the fisheries management, coastal restoration, and the supporting of marine commerce. It's a big and meaningful job. We sure do appreciate you all. And now, joining me is meteorologist Brian Klamowski. Forecasting the weather, for example, uh, here in northern Arizona, and in particular for Babbitt Ranches, there's a, a shadow effect from the peaks. Yeah. We can have a weather forecast, for example, that maybe is coming out of the southwest and run right up against the Humphreys and everybody else up on that mountain. And on the backside, going north and east, we can all of a sudden be in a drought condition yeah. where we're just uh, plentiful of uh, average moisture on the southwest side. You bet. Yeah, the mountains, the topography, you really have a huge impact on the weather, as you will. Yeah, yeah, right. So how do you have to navigate that when you're doing a Flagstaff weather forecast as opposed to a Cameron forecast? The numerical models help us a lot nowadays with their ability to resolve some of the topography. They don't have all the answers, but the effects of the mountains certainly come out in the analyses that we have. Mogollon Rim would be the other? Exactly. Mogollon Rim impact precipitation distribution affects the winds, of course, downstream of the Mogollon Rim. It's a fascinating area to forecast the weather. So with that being said, you've been doing this a long time. Yeah, 20 years 20 in years. the area. When you graduated from college, was this where you were headed? You know, I didn't know where I was headed when I graduated college. I studied thunderstorms over the high plains, researched severe weather. My heart was oriented towards service, so I wanted to be a part of helping people, helping inform people. The National Weather Service uh, was a good fit, so I kind of dipped my toe in it and fell in love. Here at Belmont to begin with, outside of Flag? Or? Rapid City, South Dakota, and then worked there about seven years. An opportunity came in Flagstaff, and I jumped right on it. I knew a little bit about Flagstaff. My mom had lived here for a while and knew it was a place I would love. That was about 2003? 2003. Rapid City. You were forecasting lots of wind and, and low temperatures. Huh? Yeah, yeah, just huge temperature fluctuations up there. You know, Rapid City is in the banana belt of oh, South sure. Dakota. We get warm air off the Rocky Mountains from the downsloping, huge thunderstorms, winds, 
cold temperatures. Yeah, tough place. So when you got to Flagstaff, what was the relief about getting to live in Flagstaff? Well, I wasn't thinking 13 feet of snow, you know, like we've had this year. I was thinking four seasons, opportunities to forecast for, uh, you know, such a broad and disparate amount of location from the deserts to the high mountains. What would be your region for forecasting? What is the area that you look at on a daily basis? You know, it's basically all of northern Arizona from about 50 miles north of Phoenix to the Utah border, east to the New Mexico border, and then as far west up until Mojave County. It's not only a large area, but it's also very diverse from, as we were even talking about, things like shadow effect, low elevation, high elevation. Always learning something new. I mean, it's such a, you know, like you said, a diverse, complex area. From a fundamental perspective, what are some of the technological advancements that you've seen from when you first were doing weather forecasting to, for example, the models you're using today? Oh, now you're taking me back. I tell you, when I started, we were ripping maps off of what's called a DIFAX machine that would print the forecast models only out to 48 hours. That's as far as they went, out to two days. And we had to use all of our understanding about the science and meteorology and the equations of motion to use the patterns we saw to try to forecast out in the future. It was a real big deal when we had some information and forecast information out to three days. Where have we come from there? Right now, uh, the forecasters at the Weather Service are using and interpreting about 150 different model solutions that are going out 10 days, 20 days, and we're bringing statistics and ensemble and probability into our forecast in ways that just wasn't dreamt about years ago to where now we have much higher resolution, much more information, and it's more of an issue of how to communicate what we know instead of what there is to communicate. That's interesting because even over the years, people use climate describing what's happening in a broader, a lot of researchers, scientific communities use climate a lot. Forecasters will use weather, maybe, for example, prediction models, forecasting models, a lot of terminology. Can you parse a little bit of that out for us? What are some of these concepts between climate prediction models and weather forecasting, things like that? Is there a difference? Let's take it one step farther. It's almost beyond forecasting and climate. And now we're into the business of looking at the impacts of the hazards that we're forecasting. So not only are we forecasting, let's say, a high of 50 winds of this magnitude and this much precipitation, but what's a critical addition that the Weather Service is providing is what is the impacts of that weather, meaning are we going to see travel delays? Are we going to see flights impacted? Will the Department of Transportation, how is it going to impact them or the counties in various ways? Will roads become impassable? Will dry mice form in our high mountain areas and cause the transmitters to ice up up there? Mm-hmm. It's much more than weather. We're now looking and trying to provide to our core partners what the impacts of that weather are. Wow, what an expansion of your responsibilities. But on some of the terminology, atmospheric rivers. Yeah. So is that a new term or is that something that you've kind of had for a while? You know, it's a new term of a phenomenon which has existed for a very long time. These very strong troughs have a stream of moisture associated with them on the southern side that brings large storms, massive amounts of precipitation to the west coast and inland from there. The term atmospheric rivers came about, what, about a decade ago or so. It's a very handy tool to kind of visualize 
the atmospheric process which is going on, and that is this river of moisture which is concentrated in a pretty narrow area and then focused onto some part of the West Coast. You know, we've seen so many of these large, strong storms on the West Coast that it's becoming just a part of our lingo now. Almost everybody now has heard of an atmospheric river. The Pineapple Express, is that something different? Not that same thing. That's a term we've been using for a long time to characterize a strong atmospheric river with a more southern component. Aside from atmospheric rivers and the Pineapple Express, two weather patterns we're used to hearing about are La Nina and El Nino. Our weather has a lot of variability, just naturally. A lot of variability every year in our weather. And the El Nino, or the warming at the equatorial Pacific, or the La Nina, the cooling at the equatorial Pacific, accounts for about 30 to 40% of that variability. Not a lot of it, but a significant part of it. So when those conditions are present, it does make us lean toward, for an El Nino, let's say a warmer and moister winter than normal, and a La Nina, perhaps certainly it would lean toward a drier winter. And that's what we had, well, this year was La Nina conditions. But it only accounts for a small part of that variability, and, well, nature kind of took its own course this winter, and did it ever. Weather is probably one of the most talked about topics in anybody's life on any given day. How does that make you feel, being the one with all the information? In one sense, I love it because it's easy to engage with people. In a way, I feel it's also a responsibility because I feel very responsible that people are getting the correct information and the right information because it impacts everybody's life. I have a lot of fun with it. I enjoy it. People worry, oh, Brian, I'm sure you don't want to talk about work. It says, yes, I want to talk about work because that's what I love doing. So you've been in in the business for a long time. You know this area very well. You know the history and you know a lot of things. What are like the fun historical facts about this area with regard to weather? Oh, what a great question. The fun historical facts. Some fun facts. Let me parse that in fun observations. Clouds are so beautiful. And we get incredible clouds here in northern Arizona. The peaks drive most of them from the Beautiful lenticular clouds, those saucer-shaped clouds we see all the time. Beautiful fog that we see after rain. What I like to think is that uh, we do get the best sunrises here in in the United States. You know, living on a high plateau with low elevations on each side, we often have mid-level clouds above us, and the sun is rising through the clear of through the desert on each side. So we see an incredible amount of beautiful sunrises and sunsets here. That's a lot of fun. You know, it's beautiful, it's fun, it's cool. What would be the one event that locals or whoever bring up to you about Flagstaff's history? October 6th, 2010. Oh, The tornado outbreak. Okay, because I was going to ask you about the tornado. Is a big one. Yeah, people ask about that a lot. I didn't know Arizona had tornadoes is yeah. the question I often get. And I said, yeah, did you know the largest tornado outbreak west of the Continental Divide was right in your backyard? There were so many people who were aware of the tornadoes, but it didn't really impact the broader folks because they didn't see them. And so, you know, but you saw the trees afterwards, right, if you went out. And I believe that thing, that tornado coming out of Belmont, it went almost all the way to past Slate Mountain, didn't it? It did. It went a long ways. It went north of 180, tracked it two or three miles north of 180. Yeah, wow. You know, incredible long track, very strong. Was there a category for it? Oh, yeah, it was F2 and F3, tornadic damage. Very strong winds towards 160, 170 miles an hour. Where do the tornadoes then fall with regard to this area? We see a handful every year 
or I should say a handful every year are reported in northern Arizona. That one was in October. What type of storms are creating these tornadoes? Those were comparable to the Midwestern supercell thunderstorm. They were dynamic, rapidly rotating, tornadic supercells. That is definitely an anomaly and not something that a lot of locals probably say were common were tornadoes, but yet at the same time, that, that was a big deal when that happened, yeah. and those trees snapping were very impressive. But let me tell you, people are going to be talking about this winter for a long time. Oh, no doubt. You know, the flooding which has gone on, the impacts of the roads that are damaged, the saturation of the soil. We still have a lot of moisture locked up in the snow. We haven't seen the end of it yet. You're absolutely right. The one that I most often refer to is 93. We had that big snowpack, and it was a big rain on top of it. And it did a lot of a similar releasing Mm -hmm. of the moisture and running the canyons and doing the things. I don't know what the difference on quantity of water is right now compared to then, but guessing this might be a little bit more. 93 was actually 50% more than this. Oh, okay. It was, well, you know, that? take what we have and add another half of what we've already had. To put it in perspective, we've had since October 1st, let's use the water year, yeah. we've had about 22 inches of moisture, yeah. by the way, which is our average for the year in right. Flagstaff. 1993 had over 30 inches at this point. Well, yeah. How about that? Are you seeing the same effects of the release of water as 93, or is it different? Because it feels different this time. It feels like there's more water running, but sounds like it was. One of the biggest differences between 1993 and this year is we have more snowpack right now at this time. 1993, in February, it melted a lot of the snowpack. Down below, let's say 8,000 feet, it just disappeared. And then you had just rainstorm, snow, and then rain, and snow, and it just kept on coming. We have a very deep snowpack. This is the longest we've ever had 10 inches of snow on the ground in the Flagstaff area in history. To have a deep snowpack like that, this is the longest. So it's a deep, mature snowpack. We see what happens now that it's starting to melt. It's having a different impact on the watersheds. The floods we had earlier this week in several locations were of the greatest magnitude, second only to 1993. The snowpack, the snowstorms, and the amount of water on the ground and in the lakes and rivers has been impressive with the winter of 2023. Babbitt Lake has overflowed its banks and for many years didn't even fill up. But what is so extraordinary is the contrast between one of the snowiest winters on record and the extreme drought northern Arizona experienced as recently as 2020. Growing up in Flagstaff, I just don't remember folks talking about the extremes like we've had in the recent years. It's hard to ferret out if the weather is getting more extreme or not. Uh, We just don't have a long enough record yet to really kind of pull out those details. Science tells us that, yes, perhaps we will see more variability in the future, and certainly having the two very dry monsoons, 2019 and 2020, followed right by two very wet monsoons, 21 and 22. Perhaps that's some evidence of that. Perhaps it's just that natural variability we've been talking about. The last year was unusual. We saw a lot of nocturnal, late evening thunderstorms. Last year just had different feel to it. So we've had so many fires in the area That seems to create a lot of that monsoon activity, at least locally, around the peaks. How is the fires removing vegetation, solar radiation, heating up the rocks earlier in the morning or retaining it longer in the evening? Not as much shade from all the trees. How do you bring that into some of your forecast? Or do you need to? Has it changed the way the monsoons develop around the peaks? Probably hasn't changed it that much. The atmosphere is extremely large, and the peaks are some pretty minor bumps in this huge ocean of water. Is it going to cause an impact? Perhaps it will. 
the deforestation which has happened up there. But right now, we really don't know the impact would be when the soils were still dark and ash-laden, would absorb heat more readily from the sun, then yes, I could see that it might produce more uh, thunderstorm activity. But now, with the growth which is happening on the peaks and the grasses, that kind of minimizes that effect and I think largely brings us back to normal. Now, where the deforestation is going to impact the peaks is in the retention of water, of course. When you have a beautiful forest up there, you're going to retain that snow a lot longer than the bare slopes. Moisture on the mountain will tend to keep it cooler and keep it from heating up as readily. Great questions. Is there a difference between forecasting weather on the East Coast as opposed to forecasting weather on the West Coast? It's different everywhere. There are so many challenges to every location. We might make fun of the people who have to forecast in Southern California to where largely they don't see much precipitation at all. But then their forecast challenges are different, like how far inland is the fog going to get? Is it going to be one mile in or four miles in? Big impacts on airports that are right next to the ocean that we're not familiar with. I think it's a little easier to forecast out west, and here's why. Having the mountains tends to define where the weather will be. It will be impacted by the mountains in a somewhat predictable way. Out in the Midwest, out on the East Coast, you have less topography to define the weather and variability which can occur due to the ocean interactions. You're forecasting large population centers where just the change in 20, 30 miles could impact millions of people very differently. Forecasting out east, I would find very difficult because the consequences of a missed forecast are huge, and you don't have as much topography or other uh, features to kind of hang the forecast on. Here, we know the Mogollon Rim is going to see more moisture. The models are good enough to tell us, well, it's going to be here versus here. One of our big forecast challenges is snow level. It's like in this previous event that was a very tough challenge for us. We were going to get massive amounts of precipitation, two to three to four inches of precipitation. And if the snow level was at 6,500 feet or 7,500 feet, make a very large difference in the forecast, and that's exactly what we saw. It was a little warmer on the tail end, so it melted more of the snow because of the rain that fell and caused a greater magnitude of flooding than we were originally anticipating. Over your 20 years, as you were just describing, forecasting has its own variability, just even in its feel and art and yeah. best guesses, so to speak, as far as what's going to happen. How do you wake up the next day and go, darn, missed that one, but just keep moving on to the next? Is there a trick you have? Is there any apprehension to it or anything that goes along with it? Or do you just say, hey, look, we made our forecast. I'm going to make tomorrow's forecast. Exactly. You need a thick skin. You need to move on because we are always wrong. We're forecasting for such a big area. We are always wrong somewhere. You know, either the low temperatures are wrong or, oh, this area got more precipitation than this one. So it's learning from your mistakes and moving on because there's always another day you have to forecast for. Looking at northern Arizona, the 2023 long-range weather information we have points to a summer with potentially above-normal temperatures and an equal chance of dry or wet monsoon season. Here's where we look at the official outlook for the monsoon, and it basically tells us, there's no signal that would lean us toward wetter than normal or drier than normal. But I would say, yeah, we do have some other signals we can look at that might provide some actionable information. And that is with the very wet winter we've had and the wet spring so far, 
there is a correlation between wet springs and the delay of the onset of the monsoon. This is one year that perhaps we might see a bit of a monsoon that started last year so early. You know, it was kind of kicking off there in mid to late June. But maybe this might be one that might lag until end of July. And what impacts might that have? Well, it might mean that the fire season might last a bit longer. True, the onset of our traditional fire season is going to be delayed a bit, but we always have a fire season. And this could be one of the years that it could extend into July. We need to prepare for that, or at least have plans in place that, yeah, this is a possibility this year. How should we take in the information that is trying to be useful and helpful in planning for future and at the same time still appreciate what the information represents? Lean into it with a keen understanding of what it is saying. Variability and the probabilities are. Last year, we looked at the forecast for the monsoon and had a pretty good idea that it was going to lean toward wetter than normal for the monsoon. We saw that we had a dry spring and a dry late winter, and that tends to correlate to wetter monsoon. We had a lot of local signals. We had the numerical models that were pointing in the direction. So you can kind of lean into that and maybe plan if you had to. This winter, we were, were forecasting warmer and drier than normal, and it was almost the exact opposite. It was cooler and wetter than normal. How can you use that information? Number one, understand it is an imperfect forecast. Just understand that. We are not good enough at our long-range outlooks yet. We're still hedging our bets. Yeah, we're leaning this way or leaning that way. There are very few slam dunks as far as outlooks go. So just understand the nature of the beast. Understand what the impacts would be to you, your organization, your community, if one solution happened and if the other. And if you're going to hedge your bets, well, maybe I need to add some protections here if this happens. Brian's weather forecasting career started with having only enough information to forecast two days in advance. Today, he looks forward to more collaborations among organizations and what he calls probabilistic forecasts. Weather service as an agency is certainly moving in some new directions. Partner interaction is one that is providing more and more information uh, to what we call our core partners. Those agencies, government agencies, and others that need to make weather-dependent decisions. Could be the school system, could be the Department of Transportation, counties, cities, working hand-in-hand when these high-impact events happen. So kind of moving more into that sector because the everyday forecast, you know, high tomorrow of 70, winds 5 to 15, 20% chance of rain, we're getting better and better at that. And weather forecasts are largely becoming a commodity. You can pick up your phone and have 20 different sources of this weather forecast. Now, of course, the local experts do a lot better than those companies that might be way out east trying to forecast for Flagstaff, Arizona. So we still have a lot of local expertise we can bring to that But you're going to see some new things coming out in our forecast. That is probabilistic forecasts. Instead of just saying there's a 20% chance of snow, you might see a forecast that says, well, there's the most likely snow range will be four to eight inches, and we have a 60% chance of more than six inches tomorrow. You want to know what the chances of a foot? Well, that's only 10% of a foot of snow in Flagstaff. So you're going to see more probabilistic information. What's the chances that it's going to be below freezing on this, let's say, September day when plants might freeze. Well, there's a 60% chance of that. So do you want to pull in your plants on that day? Yeah. So you'll see probabilistic forecasts becoming more and more common and trying to parse the information in a way that people can more easily make weather-dependent decisions. Above all, Brian and the National Weather Service understand how important their role is in our lives. 
and particularly in our safety. One of our core mission pieces is protection of life and property. And protection of, of life is something that we have information that can certainly lead people to make correct decisions. But for people to understand what their responsibility is when it comes to severe weather impacts and understanding the hazards and the impacts and just how difficult weather can be. Oftentimes, people are faced with decisions. Do I drive up the mountain? Okay, it's snowing like crazy. Should I drive up the mountain today? I see two inches of snow and I'm sliding all over the place, but I have to get home. Or, boy, it doesn't look like too much water is flowing over this road. I should be able to make it through this low water crossing. To just educate people on the dangers that are in everyday weather, just a summertime thunderstorm that might flood this drainage that you're camped in, or trying to drive across that low water crossing that's only a foot deep and you think your Jeep can make it, but it might get swept off. Just the sobering realities of weather and just trying to educate people to get excited about the weather, but have a sober respect for the power of nature. Well, really, we do greatly appreciate what you do matters so thank you sure do want to wish you the very best good luck to you and everybody out at belmont all right hey thank you so much for having me on today our guest has been brian klamowski meteorologist in charge at the national weather service station in belmont and once again i'd like to acknowledge the important and meaningful work being made possible by the folks at the national oceanic and atmospheric administration discovery with babbitt ranches is a monthly podcast exploring all things cowboy essence in land stewardship, conservation, science, agriculture, recreation, business, and community. Sure hope you have a terrific day. I'm Billy Cardasco.